0: Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. These are my relationships with industry, and I'm going to talk about three things today, uh, three priorities. One is lead preparation, two is controlled sheath advancement, and, f- and three is rescue. And I think these are core to a successful and safe uh, program. The first thing I'd like to talk to you about is control of the lead body. And anybody that's scrubbed with me knows that I spend much more time uh, prepping the leads and getting things, and I'm, I'm, I don't know, fanatical about this, obsessive about this, uh, but, I, but I'll explain why. Because if you don't have control of the lead body, you've lost already. Um, and I think we're going to learn something from tough leads. Why were these leads tough? They were tough because it was difficult to control the lead body. So what leads are those that would be low? And this is important. You pay attention to these leads and leads that behave like these leads. Initially, there were polyurethane leads. The original polyurethane lead was the Medtronic 6972-6971 lead. Um, And they were polyurethane leads, and they were polyurethane lead... uh, uh, failures, but the reason they were tough to extract was because of the conductor. The conductor w- was a very high silver content uh, conductor, very malleable, and almost no pulling power on these leads. And it turns out that the, uh, the leads, those conductors, actually facilitated uh, the, uh, the degradation of the polyurethane. Then there are a whole class of silicone leads um, these were mostly produced uh, or implanted between 1988 and 1996. These were silicone leads with relatively thin silicone. Uh, but the reason that they were difficult to extract was because the conductors were so, again, uh, springy and weak. Um, I call these the tearaway leads because you can't take one of these leads out in one piece. They always come out in pieces. They're the OSCOR leads, the VASCOR leads, the PACE-SETTER leads, the Intermedics leads, the CPI leads from this time period, um, and they, again, the problem is conductor integrity. More contemporary leads uh, that are still being implanted are the fine line, thin line leads, and these leads are coradial leads um, and uh, are, have single filers. These are rather r- relatively thick single filers, but have a, a very definite problem because they are, so, so again, so stretchy, um, but also a problem where they don't connect well to the tip of the lead. They're just wound around the distal electrode. But it's the conductor that's the problem. Uh, there's a con- and one more uh, uh, very contemporary lead, the new longevity leads. And these are particularly uh, difficult. I'll explain why in a little bit. But these are single filer leads. And, uh, Depending on how leads are put together, uh, whether it's the, the uh, cables are attached to the proximal or the distal portion of the, of the cables, uh, and uh, how, how that, that connections are made, um, may can make these defibrillator leads uh, difficultly. Uh, but it's again, it's the, the uh, it is is the tensile properties of these leads that are the problem. So the tensile strength of a lead uh, is determined by its components. It's the silicone or polyurethane, the, uh, the conductors themselves, and the joints that are within the, within the leads. We can uh, info- reinforce the uh, tensile strength, but realize that the tensile strength of the lead is dynamic, that as you pull on the lead, the lead falls apart. The lead falls apart, it, it limits your ability to be able to uh, negotiate the sheath over it. Uh, there are Leads come with different kinds of uh, conductors uh, and opportunities. You notice here that these are multi-filer leads mostly. You see here five different filers. Uh, here you see several filers, inner and outer. These are the single filer uh, conductors of a coradial lead as we do. Sometimes you have two conductors side by side, and you can see that the defibrillator ought to be the best of all of these because they have multiple cables and conductors and uh, insulation, but um, depending on how they're constructed, they can be difficult. Now the polyurethane uh, is, story is well understood that uh, although polyurethane is a fairly strong uh, substance, it can crack. And it cracks because of environmental stress cracking and metal ion oxidation. This is a 6972 lead I talked about before, and if you look very closely at these, and if you ever had a chance to take one of these out, and there's still a few of them around, they, it, there are silver dust, um, and these, and that silver actually catalyzed the metal ion oxidation of this lead, and that's why this lead, had, the insulation would peel off in sheaths. Uh, as we were just seeing there. But it's the very stretchy nature of this. If you were to try to put a locking stylet down this and, and, and to try to slide it out, it essentially becomes like a Brillo pad. It just sort of uh, it, it, it just becomes very uh, all messed up. Uh, let's see. So, um, silicone uh, is not nearly as strong as polyurethane. Um, and it has a different problem, it, it tends to flow. It's actually a liquid, it's a very viscous liquid, and you can see how it sometimes it's pushed up. But it has, if it doesn't push around like this and cause a problem, it also um, tears very easily. But it is not the insulation that is the problem, it's the conductors. And this is the best of a example of, uh, of a, a, an evolving problem. Down on the bottom here we have a coaxial lead with multiple filers uh, in the conductor. This is the longevity lead. And you can I don't know if you can tell, but there's, this is just a single filer, just a single element, very thin, for the inner conductor and a single element for the outer conductor. And if you were to um, cut this lead and pull on them, it essentially just pulls apart. In addition, it just wraps around the end of this lead. So this lead is very uh, easily destroyed in the process of, of removal, and we are in for this kind of. So this is what it, this lead looks like. So you can put a locking stylet down this lead, but if you hold on to the to the uh, the, the coil, it's going to start stretching, and what is it going to lock onto? So you're you're going to lose that control. So these leads are not very old, but be very careful. Uh, in the process of when you have to remove these leads uh, because they, they will fall apart. Now the locking styletts work very well when you have a very good uh, conductor. If you have a very strong conductor uh, they, they will work uh, better. But if you don't have that, you want to augment that uh, tensile properties by putting a suture around the insulation. You can compress the, the uh, conductors here but you want to pull in parallel uh, at the same thing. So this shows it very loose, but you want this to be at the same length. So when you're pulling on the insulation, you're pulling on the conductors, you're not stretching more one more than the other. Uh, and particularly when you have a stretchy lead, it's important that you try to crimp very well the two together. So the one tie is a very effective way of doing this. This is not the same thing as putting an, a suture on it. This is not the same thing as putting a locking stylet down. If you have a lead with poor uh, conductor uh, uh, tensile properties, this is a way of binding everything together at the proximal end. The locking stylet works at the distal end or along uh, this, and, uh, but it, and it doesn't provide any pulling. They all work together. So once you have your lead uh, and you do the best you can, you get your locking sideline as far as you can, the sutures down as best you can, the one tie, whatever it is, and and, and sometimes leads just are very strong in the first place, what you're trying to do is set up for controlled disruption of the fibrosis. So you have your vessel, the leads get implanted, scar, first clot, then scar builds up, Gets a little bit more, gets a little bit more. Sometimes it will occlude the vessel. The scar often is not that, that difficult if you can just uh, get your lead uh, to behave properly. Now, if you pull on the lead more than just positioning it, just holding it and keeping it from being pushed in when you're advancing, this is what happens. The lead moves up towards the shoulder and it pulls the vein in in front of the sheath. So when then then when you're advancing the sheath, you're asking for the sheath to go through the side of the wall of the vessel because you're pulling it in the way. What you're trying to do is not to pull on the lead, but to keep the lead beam from being advanced in. What happens if you advance the lead in? Well now the, the lead because of the friction of the sheath going over the lead is going to push, it's going to push the, the sheath in and it's not going to be controlled by the rail of the lead and it's going to push the sheath out the side of the vessel. So this is where you get into trouble uh, in the two ways. You, you do want to create a rail, but you do not want to pull the lead out and you do not want the lead to be pushed in. So the key is to position, not to pull. So this is an example of uh, using a 16 French laser, Um, and you can see that we have other leads over here, and, and you see that the lead has been positioned. I'm not advancing the lead in, I'm not pulling the lead out, I'm sliding the laser through the fibrosis over the lead, pushing away the the, uh, atrial lead from that. Let's follow it down a little bit further. I think you can see now, again, I've positioned the lead, but realize that there's friction. If I didn't hold on to the locking stylet, it would push the lead in with the sheath. That's no good. You have to hold the lead, but if I try to pull the lead out, and I pull it out, now I'm creating an unfavorable uh, uh, opportunity for the, the sheath to be advanced. Now, you get lucky. I mean, most of the time, there isn't that much connection to the vein, but you don't know when there is and when there isn't. So you have to use good technique all the time. Let's use another tool. This is an Evolution RL. These are some very old leads. This is actually a 6971, this very flimsy lead that you can't put a locking cell down. And you see... I'm doing a pretty good job at this point, We're going back and forth over the lead, just holding the lead in place. Now I'm gonna show you what not to do a little bit here, although this worked. As you notice over here, I'm advancing down and I'm not keeping the lead from going against the medial and edge of here. I allowed the sheath to carry the lead in a little bit. I should have not, I could either stop, I could have pulled back a little bit further. I mean, we're talking about just a small mount. Why did it do that? The lead stretches a little bit. I'm pushing a little bit more than I'm, than I'm, than I'm pulling. But the point is, you want to be able to keep this coming straight down the, the center of, of the vessel, not pushing against the side of the wall. Okay. That's the first part. It has to do with preparation and what your goals are in advancing your sheaths over it. The second part is backup. And uh, we're going to talk about this in several ways. I'm, I'm sure uh, Dr. Unai is going to do a much better job of doing this. But I cannot emphasize how important the huddle is and the monitoring is. But I'm going to be talking about physical preparation and rescue. The, um, The huddle I I find every single time we talk significantly through the entire procedure, including the patient, making sure that we we get everything done. It's a teaching moment. It's a way to getting everybody involved. It is a very important part of this uh, structure. And although we talk mostly about uh, failures uh, and complications that occur in the superior vena cava, and about half to two-thirds of the the problems happen in the superior vena cava that become apparent. There are other places where you can have bleeding. You can have problems at vein entry areas over here. You can do it, uh, lacerations um, in in the brachiocephalic area here before the SVC. And you can have problems in the heart, both the atrium and the ventricle. But if you're using reasonable technique, The number of times that you have intracardiac uh, problems are rare. Um, Know that tricuspid valve damage is always an issue, and you need to be keeping an eye of it. We do TEs during our procedures, and we're careful to look at the valvular function before and after. Remember that the area of most risk is in the area of the superior vena cava. And remember that the superior vena cava is both an intrapericardial and extrapericardial structure, as you can see on this this pathology. We are fortunate now to have a very compliant balloon that can sort of stretch and fit the shape of whatever the superior vena cava is, and we now pre-stage this balloon in most of our patients. This is what it looks like when we've pre-staged it, we have a, a guide wire, a stiff guide wire that goes up here. The balloon is inflated, um, and and you can see how it seals off the area. Uh, we then deflate it and pull it back into the IVC, marking how far it would have to go to, uh, to reinsert it. Um, this guide wire uh, needs to be a stiff guide wire. You need to have a 12-french sheath so that you can put it, put it up if you need to do it. If you think you need it, do it. Uh, it you don't want to wait because this bleeds very quickly. Um, it could cause tamponade or hemothorax, depending on whether the tear is intrapericardial or extrapericardial. And you really need to work on doing it. Everybody should be very f- familiar with this. These are the two references. The last one just came out in... Uh, in August, I'll show some of the data. You know, overall, uh, we we have about 0.8% emergency surgery endovascular interventions. About half those people have have died. This is over 3,000. This is a number of years ago already. Um, using the bridge balloon, we see again about 46% were non-SVC events, but this rescue rate was 88% when the balloon was used, and only 56%. When the balloon was not used, this is not. This is comes from MOD MOD database data. It's not the most uh, clean way of collecting this kind of data, but it's really uh, it it tells shows you that how effective the balloon can be in this very difficult population. The one last thing I want to talk to you about is hypothermia. We um, looked at our data about this because we had uh, uh, we had employed the hypothermia. Uh, th- only three of our uh, eight patients had hypothermia. Uh, five did not uh, out of 500 patients there. The three that did have hypothermia uh, had very favorable neurologic outcomes. Hardly a highly scientific uh, outcome here, but the point is um, it also makes sense. It is biologically plausible. It is. Th- it, it, as I'm sure Shinye will tell you in a little bit, it's difficult but it's technically feasible to, to repair these patients. The problem is, will the brain be alive at the end? And so preserving the brain, using hypothermia, I think is something that we should be strongly considered in, in every one of our cases. So just to summarize, uh, lead preparation is the key, the number one key to success, understanding the lead uh, opportunities is very important, and then once you have control of that lead body, controlled sheath advancement, not pushing the lead in, not pulling the lead out, but advancing the sheath to the myocardium so you can do countertraction and then finally, prepare for rescue, and, I, and with that, I would say that the, these are the key most, three most important key elements to transvenous lead extraction. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen at clevelandclinic.org slash loveyourheartpodcast.